This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do you feel distracted all the time? I certainly do. My wife tells me she thinks I have ADD, so she may be right. But I feel the constant pull of distraction in our high-tech society, and if the experts are right, so do you, to some degree or another at least. While our technologies offer us amazing resources and entertainment, they also make us more distracted than ever. Social scientists continue to monitor the effects of this distraction, and those effects range from increased highway fatalities to decreased workplace productivity to an ever-growing frequency of anxiety and depression. American life in the 21st century presents us vastly more sources and varieties of distraction than ever before in the history of the human race. And this can pose serious challenges both to our mental and physical health. But it also poses challenges to our spiritual health as disciples of Jesus Christ. We can become so distracted that we lose sight of what is really real, what is truly important, and our spiritual lives can become dormant, wither, and cease to bear fruit. In our culture of distraction, how then can we form and maintain lives of spiritual vitality, lives in which we know Christ in us, the hope of glory, lives of spiritual maturity that bear the image of Jesus Christ? Well, in our gospel reading today, we encounter a distracted and frustrated Martha. Jesus has come to her village. She has welcomed him into her home and she is busy preparing food and probably sleeping arrangements for him and his disciples. She is fulfilling with all righteousness her culturally prescribed responsibilities as a host in ancient Middle Eastern society. Meanwhile, her younger sister Mary, who by all social measures ought to be assisting Martha with her duties, is instead sitting at Jesus' feet with the men and listening to him teach. Exasperated by her sister's neglectful behavior, Martha interrupts Jesus and pleads with him to make Mary help her. Do you not care, she asks Jesus, that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? I don't hear this in my household, by the way. <laughs> to which Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, in my experience, this gospel message has often been applied in ways that, while perhaps well-intended, weren't quite on the mark. Long before people began taking online quizzes to plumb the hidden mysteries of their Myers-Briggs profile or their Enneagram number, or which Hogwarts house they might belong to, they were being asked, yes, you can guess it, are you a Mary or a Martha? How many of you heard that at some point along the way? Right, Lots of hands going up. 
I don't know how many times I heard some version of this question growing up or some sermon about this text growing up, but it generally followed one of two interpretations. The first interpretation was that Martha was a spiritual imbecile, that she was an uptight, nervous Nellie, rendered so spiritually blind by her frenetic busyness that she completely missed the point, while Mary wisely and serenely chose the better part. Don't be a Martha was the moral of that version. And I think I could hear my mother's teeth grinding all the way to the end of the pew. The problem with this interpretation is that it simply uses Martha as a foil and fails to understand her actual struggle and actual intentions. Well, the second interpretation spiritualizes or psychologizes the story, rendering Mary and Martha as two opposing and complementary personality types. Out of curiosity, I googled, are you a Mary or a Martha? And of course, the top two hits were actually online quizzes that would help you to determine which personality type you are. According to this interpretation, Martha is the active type who likes to make lists, organize her shoes, and plan weekly menus, while Mary is the contemplative type who prefers to read existential novels, write poetry, and sip cafe au lait by the Seine. By this account, our gospel passage is more or less a first century version of sense and sensibility. Neither the active nor the contemplative type is better or worse. What's important is that we understand which type we are, according to this interpretation, and make sure to avoid the potential problems of that type. Well, the problem with this interpretation is that it ceases altogether to view Mary and Martha as actual human beings and ignores the fact that Jesus clearly says that Mary has chosen the better part. Now, there are grains of truth, of course, in each of these interpretations, but neither of them really grasps the ancient Middle Eastern context of this passage. Ironically, in the eyes of a first century Israelite, the problem person in this story would be Mary, not Martha, but Mary. Not only has Mary neglected her family responsibilities, both to her guests and to her sister, but she has abandoned the proper sphere of her domestic role as a woman to sit among men as a disciple of a rabbi. The fact that Mary makes this choice and the, the even more astonishing fact that Jesus affirms her in making it was a radical contradiction of the cultural mores of that time. By contrast, Mary, Martha would have been perceived as being in the right, as the mature and responsible woman who upholds the cultural code of hospitality and puts her guests' needs before her own. Overturning all of this, Jesus makes it clear that Mary has chosen the better part, and that would have been utterly shocking to his first century readers. So viewed in this light, the passage joins the company of many gospel passages in which Jesus challenges the traditions of first century Judaism as he ushers in the kingdom of God. He lays hands on lepers, he heals on the Sabbath, he eats with tax collectors and sinners, and he radically elevates the worth and place of women. Mary sees this and is drawn to it and eagerly responds, but Martha is not yet able to. 
Now, there are some nuances also of translation in this passage that give us greater insight into Martha's struggle. Our NSV, NRSV translation generically and unhelpfully simply says that Martha was distracted by her many tasks. But a more specific and better translation would be that Martha was drawn away or distracted by much service. Martha wasn't merely an uptight person obsessed with getting things done. She was doing her best in this situation to serve Jesus, who was her honored guest. Notice that Jesus never tells her that what she's doing is wrong. He and the disciples are no doubt deeply grateful for her service. Yes, he corrects her, but he doesn't rebuke her. He understands that Martha's desire to serve him is in itself a good and beautiful thing. So what then is the problem? The problem is that Martha chooses her service to Jesus over Jesus himself. In her desire to serve him and to be a good host, Martha was actually distracted from Jesus. It could be that she initially was listening to him along with Mary. I like to imagine that that was the case, but then was drawn away by her sense of responsibility. But the truth is, we just don't know. Martha's, but, what, but that, that is why Jesus says that Mary has chosen the better part. Not because Martha's motives are wrong, but, but, but because she has allowed that which is only relatively important to draw her away from what is ultimately important, from sitting in Jesus' presence and listening to him. By contrast, Mary understands that nothing is more important than to remain precisely where she is, sitting at Jesus' feet, and Jesus affirms that she has made the better choice. So why is it that Martha doesn't join her sister? What is it that causes her to be distracted from sitting with Mary at Jesus' feet? Sadly, the answer is clear. It's her anxiety. Martha, Martha, says Jesus, and this repetition of her name is a sign of his love and concern for her, not condemnation. You might recall he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. This is an expression of love and concern. Martha, Martha, he says, <clears throat> you are worried and distracted by many things, but only one thing is truly necessary. Out of her anxiety to fulfill her cultural obligations as his host, Martha has allowed herself to be drawn away from the one thing that in reality is the only thing that matters her relationship with Jesus himself. Jesus is here, and when Jesus is present, nothing else can take priority. So the point of this passage is not to demonize Martha and exalt Mary, nor is it to present them as the spiritual yin and yang of activity and contemplation. Rather, it's to prompt us to ask ourselves how we, like Martha, might be tempted out of anxiety and our need for cultural acceptability to grant ultimate importance to things in our lives that are only relatively important. And in doing so, to allow ourselves to be drawn away from that which is most important and really real, our relationship with Jesus Christ. St. Ambrose of Milan says, let the desire for wisdom lead you as it did Mary. It is a greater and more perfect work. Do not let your service divert you from knowledge of the heavenly word. Martha is not rebuked in her good serving, 
but Mary is preferred because she has chosen the better part. Well, how are we to respond to the truth of this passage? How, what does it reveal to us about our own choices? And how can we grow in following Mary's example? And there's a lot we could talk about if we had time. Um, and I'm always happy to talk more if you want to talk about it afterwards. But I think the following points are worth considering. First, I think we need to be sober in our assessment of the degree to which we are spiritually affected by our culture of distraction and by our need for cultural approval. And that distraction can come in many forms. I'm a great believer in getting things done and my employer rewards me for it, but when do I stop checking boxes in order to spend time in prayer? I love to be immersed in a good story but escapist binge-watching of morally dubious shows may not be the most conducive to a Christ-centered life. Maybe for you it's checking your email or your media feed or online shopping or whatever. The point is, whatever it is that you find yourself compulsively doing that keeps you from nurturing your relationship with Jesus Christ is your personal form of distraction. And I think we all know what that is, or maybe it's more than one thing. Whatever you find yourself compulsively doing that keeps you from nurturing your relationship with Jesus Christ is your personal form of distraction. So in what ways are we allowing these things, which may be good in their own right, although some of them aren't, obviously, to distract us from what's most important? <clears throat> in our home group, we've been reading through the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, it's been about 30 years since I read that, and I'm always amazed again by his genius. And it's painful because his genius is like a scalpel that cuts right to the heart of your motivations, right? But Lewis is unapologetic in naming distraction as one of Satan's chief weapons by which to lead us away from God. Speaking to Wormwood, a junior demonic tempter, the senior devil screw tape says this, remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from our enemy, the enemy being God. It does not matter what the sins are, as long as their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. I think that's a stunningly uh, insightful comment. Now, I don't want to overstate it, but I do think there is something diabolical about our culture of distraction. And if we're going to cultivate the life of Christ in us, we need to be honest with ourselves about the ways we are being edged away from God by those distractions. Well, second then, like Mary, we need to cultivate a life in, in, instead of this that, is knowing, that has knowing and loving Jesus as its central organizing principle. And this means choosing a way of life, a form of life, in which we regularly sit at Jesus' feet and have communion with him. Now, one of the wonderful things about being Anglican, and one of the main reasons why I became an Anglican, is that we have time-tested practices for doing this built right into our prayer book, if we're willing, of course, to take advantage of them. That's the million-dollar condition there, right? Many Anglicans have historically followed a threefold pattern of spiritual practice that includes weekly corporate worship, the daily office of morning or evening prayer, or morning and evening prayer, 
which includes reading scripture, and daily personal prayer. Now, whether we follow this threefold rule of prayer or not, some regular pattern of weekly worship and daily reading of scripture and prayer is essential for cultivating our life in Christ. I think that's just Christianity 101. We need weekly corporate worship that includes the preaching of the word and Holy Communion to renew our union with Jesus and one another. We need daily meditation on scripture, confession of sin, and prayers for ourselves and others that are part of the daily office. And we need regular times of personal prayer in which we pour out our deepest thoughts and concerns to God and seek his wisdom and peace. And we need to be intentional about building these things into our lives. Now, our family doesn't do this perfectly by any means, but we found a pattern that's worked for us, and I thought I would just tell you that pattern, and if you find it helpful, great, and if not, well, find something else, right? Uh, Each week, we take a 24-hour Sabbath from Saturday dinner to Sunday dinner in which we unplug from all work or homework, spend time together as a family, and always attend Sunday worship. And nothing is allowed to compete with that. We're pretty pretty, uh, stringent about that. On weeknights after dinner, we follow an abbreviated form of evening prayer in which we confess our sins, read and discuss scripture, and pray for our needs and the needs of others. And we're part of a home group that meets every other Sunday evening. Now, there are other things we do at different times of the liturgical year, but that's our basic core pattern, which we follow week in and week out. It's not complicated. It's not some great Herculean uh, uh, task. And we've come to treasure this simple pattern and way of life, and I think now we could never imagine life without it. Now, we could do more, I'm sure. We could be better at things like fasting, I have no doubt. But this is what we've succeeded in putting in place as a family. The biggest challenge for Karen and me between work and parenting is actually making time for personal prayer. That's where we find the greatest rub. I found that I can pray in my car, that works, or I can pray in the shower. Uh, And these give me some measure of solitude in which to bring my heart and mind before the Lord. But that's not ideal by any stretch, and that's a work in progress for us. On a side note, I do find the Jesus prayer, if you're familiar with that, really helpful. At those times when I feel desperate to pray, but I just don't have the time in my daily schedule, just to repeat the Jesus prayer for a period of time has been a wonderful way to center and focus my spiritual life for the rest of my day or the rest of the week or what have you. Now, whatever pattern of spiritual practice you choose to follow, I encourage you to be intentional about it. The simple truth is that the only way to cultivate a Christ-shaped life is to replace those things that edge us away from Jesus with patterns and practices that draw us toward him. It stands to reason. And if we're going to survive and thrive spiritually in our culture of distraction, and pass that spiritual wisdom on to our children, we really have no alternative but to adopt a form of life that's able to resist the pressures of our culture and keep Jesus Christ at the center. Now, as I close, I think it's important to keep two things in mind as we endeavor to do this. I I strongly encourage you to do this, but I also think we need to keep these things in mind as we do. 
First, this isn't some sort of test, right? You can't get a black belt in Christian spirituality. And the measure of your Christian life is not found in how well you succeed in mastering the threefold rule of prayer. You will not be granted any superpowers other than the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is saying something. No, the only value in following a pattern of Christian spiritual practice is the degree to which it deepens your love for and obedience to Jesus Christ. It's simply a way of sitting at his feet like Mary. It's a means of knowing him, not an end in and of itself. The moment we confuse the form of our spiritual life with its substance, then we've lost sight, I think, of that goal. And this leads to my second and final point about this. The goal of all of this is Christ in us, the hope of glory. The goal of all of this is to enter into the love and grace of God in Jesus Christ and to grow in that love and grace. The goal is to allow the love of Jesus to shape our thoughts and actions such that all these aspects of our lives are increasingly directed to him and for him. So our character, our sense of vocation in the world, our work, our relationships, our family life, our use of time and resources, all of this, the goal is to bring them all together into harmony with that great center of all things who is our Lord Jesus. We don't undertake spiritual practices because they make us better Christians. We undertake them because they help us to rest in God's love and grow in God's love. His love is the way and his love is the goal so that in all things, his love is supreme. Friends, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, let us come repenting of all that distracts us from Jesus. And let us be like Mary. Let us choose that which is truly important over that which is only relatively important. Let us come and sit at Jesus' feet Let us enter into his love and grace and abide there forever. For he is the better part, and he will never be taken away from us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.